Hi everyone, I'm really excited today to have a past lit review guest, Alex Miller here. She is a deportation defense attorney and she's from Tucson. And we're gonna talk about the Remain in Mexico program and asylum law more broadly, as well as corporate law. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. (laughs) And how young associates of color could potentially navigate that. I don't, I'm not endorsing that route, but I do like to get information like that out there for people who do want to pursue that path for whatever personal reason. Or who, who need to pursue that yeah, path. Yeah, yeah. So first, what motivated you to go to law school? So it, it's kind of one of those sad and apathetic uh, reasons. You know, I, I graduated from undergrad in 2010, and it was in the midst of the economic downturn. There were really no jobs out there. Yeah. So what did you major in? International relations. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a self-defined a self-defined major. I called it economic development and social justice. Oh cool. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I ended up taking an unpaid internship at the National Organization for Migration doing research on trafficking and statelessness and figured I would take that year, see how I felt, take the LSAT and decide whether or not I wanted to go to law school. And I just jumped on the train. (laughs) But there had to have been something that motivated you, like the thought of going to trial or being in a power suit. (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely the power. No. (laughs) I think looking back, I've always been very justice and fairness oriented. So I think it was an obvious and logical accident that I went to law school. Mm-hmm. And I did want to continue my education, and I think that it, it is academically interesting. Yeah. I never imagined myself in court. Okay. But, but now but, you're in court a lot. But here I, here I am. <laughs> and my dad's so happy. He's like, they can hear your voice. Oh. <laughs> Why does that matter? <laughs> well, your dad's an interpreter. His voice was in the court. But it was. he appreciates, like, your analysis in the court. No, I think he just thinks I have a good, strong voice and literally <laughs> wants me to be heard. Okay, well, I can appreciate that too, I guess. <laughs> so can you tell us about the transnational initiative that you work for and why it's so important right now? Yeah, so I think doing... there It was a logical step to start doing some U.S. immigration work on the other side of the border, especially considering the the practice of tolling at the border, basically meaning that folks that want to present and ask for asylum, which is their their right, basically have to get in a line. Mm-hmm. And depending on what border town they're in, that line could be four weeks, it could be six weeks. Recently in Nogales, it was 10 to 12 weeks. Oh my God. Now it's back down to six. You know, there are a lot of folks that are, are waiting there and they really are in the dark about what to expect in terms of procedure, what their yeah. lives are gonna look like mm-hmm. the moment they enter CBP Customs Border Patrol custody, but also what the legal process is going to look like. Mm-hmm. So giving them an opportunity to make more informed decisions, not to make decisions for them, yeah. of course, but to know what to expect and how to strategize. And that's only more important now with the mig- the so-called migrant protection protocols. Yeah. Or some people are calling them migrant persecution protocols. Or, oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> or remain in Mexico um, as an increasing number. I mean, there are over 30,000 people, I think, that have been returned. That's so wild. Um, Just like on border towns waiting. Yeah. Yeah, so as, as MPP expands, it'll become more important that American attorneys 
ship some of their work to the border because folks will be fighting for their lives from Mexico. Yeah. And do you think that there's people who who give up their journeys because of how long they have to wait in Mexico? Have you heard stories about that from folks that you've encountered? Anecdotally, yes. I think it's a really small number. Folks that have made it all the way here have come with so much hope and determination and often a lot of faith in God. Yeah. And they really think that when people see their suffering, compassion will change their minds. Mm -hmm. And regardless of what they hear about the... I don't want to say the truth, but what what the processes look like, what the politics look like, what the moment in the United States looks like, Mm -hmm. they hope that they will be that exception to the general rule. Or, you know, you explain asylum law or the very basic principles of asylum law to them, and even though it doesn't fit their lived experience, they think that there's going to be some, some way around it. Yeah. That being said, some I, I have heard anecdotally of some people turning back. I think in particular folks who are also at risk in Mexico. Right. And some of these border towns are frankly quite dangerous, yeah. especially for vulnerable populations like migrant populations. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're encountering some of the same risks or threats, you know, I, I've been working with a number of trans women and yeah. they were in serious peril mm-hmm. in Nogales. Yeah. What are they at risk of? Like cartels or trafficking or like what what would you say are the risks that people face? Like, yeah, what what do they tell you? I I think they really depend on the individual circumstances. But for for members of the LGBT community or for trans women, they are very visible. They're very vulnerable, mm-hmm. and cartels and criminal organized crime do target them. Yeah, migrants in general are targeted by coyotes or people that are affiliated with cartels and want to get their dime out of helping people present to the border and you know most of these people want to go to the port of entry Mm -hmm. right so you don't need help yeah to go to the port of entry Mm -hmm. but then this that just brings up why like what you do is so important because you know what the distinction the distinction between what a port of entry is versus like crossing the river or going through the mountains people don't really know that there's like a difference in how the government registers those two things you know so i think right yeah i think it's and especially when there were different bond eligibility requirements for yeah. presenting versus not i think it's really important for folks to know that yeah it really is and i think the perception is shifting a little bit. There are a lot of people who, again, come with a lot of hope and they want to do it the quote right way. Yeah. And they I've want to present at the port of entry because they think that they will get more respect yeah. from the US government if they do it the right way. Mm-hmm. And then they are surprised that they end up in detention just like everyone else. Yeah. That was something that came up when I used to do KYRs is there'd be people who would say when I would tell them that because they presented at the port of entry, they weren't eligible for bond. They yeah. said, well, why? Because I thought I did it the right way, and how come they did it illegally? They would say illegally. Yeah. And they get to get out on bond. I don't get that. Yeah. No, <laughs> it, it doesn't make... There's no logical consistency. Yeah. Right? And I tell people that all the time, like, es ilógico, es injusto. Like, 
but it is what it is right now. Yeah. And yeah. trying to remember that, you know, for individual clients, you are fighting within an inherently unfair system. But to remember that you also want to fight what that system is as a whole. Yeah. Do you feel like you get to do the latter in direct legal services? I think I'm uniquely situated because the team I'm working on is is so new and because the organization I'm working with on the border is also advocacy oriented. Mm -hmm. I really get to kind of have my feet in a bunch of different pies, doing a bit of direct services, a bit of advocacy, and also program development, Mm -hmm. right? So I've had a lot of independence and I didn't, I didn't expect that. What do you mean by that independence? What have you been able to do that you thought you wouldn't? I thought, I thought I'd be taking a lot more orders. I didn't think I'd have freedom. And like when it boils down to it, I've been a lot, I feel like a lot of faith has been put in me, into Mm -hmm. me and I've been able to really direct where I want this team to go or how I want it to grow. Mm -hmm. And of course that could change, but I mean, I, th- I think it's been pretty cool. Yeah, I love that. So you mentioned tolling at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. Is that something that existed prior to the Remain in Mexico? Yes. Okay, I so generally how long have wait times been? Like, so historically? They, historically? Well, historically tolling didn't exist. When did it start? Don't hold me accountable for any exact date, but I think for the past year, year, year and a half, something like that, it's a relatively new policy. It was implemented to organize people and to make it more efficient Mm -hmm. so that they can more efficiently process folks as they approach the border. What we've seen, however, is decreases in the numbers of people who are processed daily. So the the efficiency arguments kind of fall on deaf ears, at least for me. I don't don't completely buy it. Yeah. In terms of wait times, it, it fluctuates based on season and based on what's going on in migration over the summer. The wait time has gone down from 10 to 12 weeks to about six. But it's hot outside. It's more dangerous yeah, yeah. To, to make the journey. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes logical sense and, and often less people come during the summer. What is one thing that you would want to change in asylum law currently and why? So... When you look at the broader paradigm of asylum law, it was conceptualized in the wake of World War II, right? When things seemed more straightforward or obvious, they were creating a system to protect people from government persecution for who they were. Yeah. Right? And they focused mm-hmm. on... Like things you can't change about yourself. Right. Things you can't change about yourself. And they, they built that into the law. They came up with the things that they thought you couldn't change about yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... As we know, categorization is kind of futile when it comes to humans. Yeah. And there are many more reasons that individuals could be persecuted. I think there's a a classic conflict between kind of your civil rights and your economic social rights that, that we could get into. But if I wanted to talk about one thing specifically, you know, there's a requirement 
in general that the government be the persecutor mm-hmm. or the the applicant has the burden of proving that the government is unwilling or unable to protect them mm-hmm. and that burden really is a, a doozy yeah right? a judge can decide not to believe the evidence that the applicant shows mm-hmm. and when you look at the reality on the ground in countries where there is very little rule of law the government is often not the direct persecutor and i think we should consider the implications of that limitation on asylum law. Yeah. I think that's especially important, you know, now looking at the Central American countries. Who oh, like, yeah. Like, honestly, the MS-13, for example, is like a quasi-government state in El Salvador. In yeah. The, in the rural areas, for sure. And why, and why is that not considered unable? Like, why is it, why would a judge not determine that the government of El Salvador is unable to protect its citizens. Well, they could look at something like El Salvador and Guatemala recently started a new task force to combat the MS-13, right? So (laughs) you could create a task force and then say the government is willing, right? And then judges are so very willing to overlook the unable portion, right? You'll use one fact to prove the point you want and ignore the context or the lived experience of people who are trying to escape. Yeah. And it's really awful thinking about the role that the U.S. has had in destabilizing those governments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's like we have a moral responsibility to accept people who are fleeing from the situation that the U.S. helped create. Yeah, the 70s, 80s, and 90s yeah. were wild in yeah. Central America. Yes. <laughs> and they're still wild now, but just for yeah. different but related reasons. Yeah. Can you describe the space of El Comedor and the role that it has in Nogales in the border community? So basically the context I'm working in is if I were to guess what the the size of the space is, I'd say about maybe 35 by 40 feet. It's kind of a makeshift dining hall Mm -hmm. that until... Oh, they only recently put walls up. It it used to be an open air space until like a year ago. And... The idea is to bring humanitarian aid and accompaniment to to migrants. It started to support deported migrants who had been living in the United States and were sent back to a Mexico that they didn't know or understand. Um, And then as the demographics of migration shifted and there were more asylum seekers than economic migrants, the role of the comedor started to shift as well. In a little over a month, we'll actually be moving into a new resource center where we'll have classroom space and I'll wow. have my own office. And wow. the, the amount of resources we're going to be able to give the, to the community is going to change drastically. Wow, that's really cool. So what are you planning on doing in the classroom spaces? So we do kind of know your rights orientations. We also do intakes and consultations. If Remain in Mexico happens in Nogales, we also want to help with pro se asylum application preparation. But the idea is, you know, we have someone down there once a week right now. My dream is to move towards a full-time legal clinic. Yeah. Is this similar to what Al Otro Lado does? Right now, no. Okay. I'd say the main difference is the organization down there is focused on accompaniment and humanitarian aid. So they're feeding people and bringing resources to them and, and witnessing their lived experience. 
while there is a role uh, for advocacy, I think they're much less activist. Okay. And I, el, I, el comedor is less activisty. Yeah, less yeah. activist than al otro lado. I would I would say. Okay. In in a sort of agnostic way, right? Like the work in and of itself is progressive and activist because it means a lot yeah. to the company people, but they're not you know out there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think there's like different ways to be political, you know. Right. And I, I do agree. think cooking meals for people is political. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But I get what you're saying that they're not organizing or. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have thoughts, or do you ever get scared at how the DOJ has taken a really aggressive stance? in defining what it means to encourage somebody to cross and oh. whether or not like something in my opinion no but in a, like how they've interpreted giving know your rights presentations or like even some filing someone's pro se application while in Nogales might constitute that encouragement well, I think that's really rich considering the expansion <laughs> of MPP, right? right. Like, they're yeah. forcing people to yeah. prepare their merits from Mexico than to yeah. say for any lawyer or layperson to, to be there and assist people pr- to prepare their case yeah. when they're forced to be there. And I know we're not only talking about Remain in Mexico, but, like, I think that's really rich. Yeah. At the same and I think t- it's, like, one-sided, too. Oh, it, it's totally one-sided. Because, like you said, like, you you help people become better informed. Right. I definitely say things that might at times discourage that people. That deter people, yeah. If you're like, oh, you're going to be mandatorily detained. Or, like, <laughs> you're probably going to be separated from your children. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, I am not always the bearer of good news. I'm often the bearer of bad news. Mm-hmm. If anything, well, I wouldn't say that I discourage people more than I am. I don't want to. I don't want to say that. But you know, there there are a lot of risks inherent in the journey, and when your job as a lawyer is often to make people aware of the risks, exactly. Yeah, it it can be discouraging. Mm-hmm. And I I think that this fits in with every other kind of lawyering. Like you said, you just you inform your client of the risks of actions that they're contemplating. Yeah, that was a very <laughs> corporate way of framing it. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, no, I mean, that, I mean, that's how I framed it. Oh, your, oh. But, like... <laughs> no, I don't... No, I don't think it's basic lawyer. It's basic lawyer. No, I mean, be like, if you're a public defender, like, you're telling someone, hey, you can take this plea agreement or you can go to trial and potentially face a harsher sentence. You know, mm-hmm. you're always telling people, like, yeah, what might happen based on what the legal landscape is. And I also think that you as a client-centered lawyer never impose decisions on your clients no it's not your decision to make you know like i think most people who are cool direct legal service providers know that like cool (laughs) (laughs) yes know that there's no there's usually not a right choice there's not an easy choice and i always feel uncomfortable even just, like, having to spell out for somebody how bad a situation is. So I would never want to make that decision for them. Like, who knows it's what my really influence fine could do. Line. Yeah. Yeah, you know, giving someone the appropriate information and giving them the tools to make a decision themselves without pushing them or, or tilting them one way or the other. And I know that other organizations have had issues mm-hmm. 
some more than others, but yeah. I think, you know, I at least, in my own personal capacity, I'm, I try to be very thoughtful Yeah. when I'm interacting with folks. Yeah. I, to me, the bottom line is, like, that language needs to be changed because it's way too broad. Like, oh, yeah. What, like, what does it mean to encourage somebody? What, like, would me being, like, I'm in solidarity with you constitute encouragement? Right. Or <laughs> speaking to someone from Venezuela or Nicaragua or Cuba who has an objectively decent claim and telling yeah. them, you know what, like, I don't know enough about your circumstances, but from what I've learned now, like, you have a decent asylum claim. Mm-hmm. Is that encouragement? Right. When you're just... When that could also be characterized as just giving them legal advice. Right. (laughs) Yeah. What advice would you have, or do you have, for young lawyers of color, especially women, who are going to be practicing in predominantly white nonprofit spaces? interesting well I think for me it's interesting because of course a lot of nonprofits are predominantly white where I work is is relatively diverse but I also am working among a community that I'm not part of right like I'm not Latino so I bring a different kind of diversity mm-hmm. and so being aware that you know yes I am diverse I bring diversity to the context but I'm also not part of of the community I serve or like directly impacted or directly impacted is something that I try to be aware of and think of myself as an ally yeah or or try to be the best ally I can I think in terms of what I would suggest young attorneys or law students who want to move into nonprofit spaces I think it's all about finding ways to maintain your own identity, to stick up for who you are, and to find your own truth within those spaces. And that can be hard. It's easier said than done. But try to play to your strengths. Mm-hmm. I like that. Finding out who you are in that space. Because we're told that there's this mold of like the respectable personal color that you're supposed to try and oh, fit yeah. into. And I like this other idea of creating a mold for yourself. Yeah, so I mean, people talk a lot about code switching or like having to be someone else yeah. Yeah. at work. And the thing is, that is every, true to an extent. Everyone, <laughs> everyone is someone else at work. Yeah, like, yeah. you wear different clothing at work, mm-hmm. you dress professionally. Like, I have a professional self and like yeah. the real me. Mm-hmm. But I think that you can still honor who you are within the professional mold. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you have to take on an otherness or a whiteness or whatever to make that space work for you. So I think figuring out who that professional person is for you, right? Like, I'm not going to straighten my hair just for work. Yeah, no, no, no. I'll do it for myself. If I feel like it. I I love that. I think that's perfect advice. We're switching into a topic I have not broached <laughs> in my two years of podcasting. Alex, what advice would you give to young associates of color who want to go into big law? So, 
I think so. I spent four and a half years in Big Lebowski. Yeah, it's a while. Which is longer than I intended. <laughs> but I found out some crazy stuff about LRAP after the fact. Wait, really? What did you find out after the fact? Things that they could use for adjusted income and that basically oh. I wouldn't qualify. Okay, okay. So I decided to go gung ho and pay off the loans mm-hmm. and then hightail it. I think. Especially, read the fine print in your LRAP. <laughs> yes, that is advice. Yeah. Read, yeah, read the fine print. Yeah. Be thoughtful about how you approach loan repayment. But especially if you're someone like me who doesn't want to do big law long term, let that empower you, mm. right? Like I, <laughs> I wasn't trying to make partner, right? Which gave me a sort of freedom yeah. to speak truth to power that I wouldn't have had if I was trying to go up the rungs. Mm-hmm. Like I remember there's a time I, I did project finance, which is like infrastructure and natural resource work, which best case scenario is positive infrastructure that helps people or uh, renewables or worst case scenario it's like pipelines oh my God. and like other stuff so <laughs> I was able to tell people that I didn't want to do pipeline work nice because I didn't care yeah right so like it's not the best advice if what you want to do is go up the rungs and climb the ladder or whatever but at a certain point you have to kind of like the work you do and <laughs> yeah <laughs> Right, like I felt very different about being on a solar project than being on a pipeline project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, or even, you know, feeling empowered to, to get engaged in different kind of initiatives at the firm and really speak up for other people of color and for other women at the firm because I felt like I could. Yeah. Um, and sometimes just stupid stuff. Like I publicly asked at a town hall that they put free tampons in the bathrooms. <laughs> Right? And, like, yeah. I didn't care. Yeah. It's like, if half an hour of my time was worth $300 and that's what it would take to walk to CVS, then why don't you just pay 50 cents so I could have a free tampon? <laughs> it's so wild that once you become a lawyer, you think about your time that way. It's disgusting. I it's know. Really it's problematic. problematic. Yeah. <laughs> but I find myself, you know, kind of justifying the same thing, like, justifying by uh, getting my groceries delivered, for example. Yeah. Yeah, because of how valuable your time seems. Yeah. And I think that happens at corporate law all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I actually there was a professor at Stanford who shared that the the moment she realized that she needed to leave big law was when her mom had been calling her like throughout the day and she just pressed ignore and then she was like who then she stepped back and was like, who am I to think that I don't have time for my mom or that I'm too busy for my mom? Yeah. And that's when she, like, she said she woke up and she she went to academia. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it's like my, my mom lives in Tucson and my best friend works for her. And they would call me from happy hour or dinner or whatever mm-hmm. at, like, 8 p.m. Tucson time and I'd be at work. It was like, oh, on the East Coast? On the East Coast. So yeah. three hours later. Yeah. And they're, like, doing happy hour and having a grand old time. Or I'm ordering dinner at work at, like, 9 p.m. And the delivery guy calls and says that he's downstairs. And you go downstairs and he's not there. And you realize, oh, he didn't want to wait for me. So he called me to... Mm -hmm. Like, I can wait two minutes in a lobby. Right. Right? Gross. Yeah. Did you hear about... Do you know who Melissa Murray is? 
I mean, she's like a Berk. She was a Berkeley law professor, and then she's like she's a commenter of of the law in the in the social in like the public arena. And uh, she recently made an argument that, or she I think she responded to an article that said that we should cut off the pipeline of big law partners into the judiciary. Oh, I I did hear you about know, that. You heard about this, right? Because yeah. then Melissa Murray's response was like, oh, but that will cut off so many people of color from the judiciary. What are your thoughts on that? I Interesting. That really can't be the only way. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, that can't be the only solution. Like, we need to be empowering women and people of color in all different forms of practice and law. Yeah. And the thing is, politics, power, the, judu- the judiciary are all so tied to money and access that an obvious leap is from big law to the judiciary. Yeah. But there have to be other paths. And when someone says something like, we, sh- we should change the way we're doing it, we should cut off this pipeline, no one actually is saying that in absolute terms. Yeah. Right? So yeah, it's like, I think that's important to say. We, we need to change our approach. We need to think about creative ways to get more diversity, not just in terms of gender, race, whatever, but also perspective and background. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like we need to have less of a pro-prosecution judiciary. Straight that, up. That's a big concern of mine. Straight yeah, up. I think, I think that's more important than like, are we going to have big law partners as judges or not? I think, yeah, I just don't, that's not a conversation I want to be in, but I think, right. I mean, and I think that's fine if that exists. And I don't know, Melissa Murray claims to know all of the partners of color. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, <laughs> that can it's be a great small judges. circle. There was like know, one yeah. black partner at my law firm in its New York office and yeah. there were like 500 attorneys. Oh so. But I, I just think I'm not excited about the idea of a big law partner, even if they are a person of color, becoming a judge. Just because, because like I, I, because I care about more than just quote unquote representation. Like I don't care if it's a right. Latina woman who's making horrible decisions, like allowing for the funding of the border wall to go through, for example. Right. Yeah. So I just, I think, like you said, we do need to pay attention to things like perspective because yeah. that's why I think having public defenders or like criminal defense attorneys as judges is really important and why having deportation defense attorney, former deportation defense attorneys as immigration judges is really important. But it's really funny, because, like the reason that that... Well, I would proffer that the reason that that happens is because there's a perception of what counts as neutral or neutrality and what types of jobs are neutral. And for whatever reason, being a prosecutor is neutral, but being a defender is not. It makes you an activist, right? So being working in deportation defense, I am now an activist. I am assumed to be like, (laughs) I don't like... I could throw any, like, whatever classic insults on myself, but (laughs) the same happens with jury selection. What do you mean? What kind of excuses are used to uh, exclude certain people from a jury, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you've ever... One question that they'll ask... I was on a jury once in New York, which is kind of crazy that they they let me be on the jury as an attorney and a person of color and a person that has family (laughs) members that have been or are in jail. How How did that happen? I think it was like the sixth day of Wadir and the judge was just sick of it. <laughs> he was over it. Yeah, he was over it. And I was a corporate attorney at the time, so like, she's fine. <laughs> Neutral. <laughs> but right, like if you've ever experienced crime, 
Yeah. It's something that they consider. And if you're from a marginalized community, the likelihood that you've experienced crime becomes higher and then easier to exclude you for a legitimate reason from a jury pool. Yeah, quote-unquote legitimate. Yeah. yeah. I know this idea of objectivity is so funny because, like, they ask, in jury selection, they ask, are you in favor of the death penalty? And if you say no, you're just categorically excluded. You know, and it's like, uh, is this an objective selection or are you tilting towards people who are pro-punishment? <laughs> right, you're definitely <laughs> tilting towards people who are pro-punishment. Yeah. I mean, there are states where the death penalty is illegal. Right. There are two sides to that coin. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and like, thinking about prosecutors as objective is the weirdest thing to me because they, like, let's take an ICE trial attorney, for example. They work super closely with CBP and with ICE and just are going to naturally have sympathy or empathy with that experience and think of every single undocumented immigrant as somebody to prosecute. Yeah. And even though we call it a civil proceeding, it feels like a criminal proceeding. Well, yeah, and I mean, the efficiency arguments, again, go out the window because when it's a weak case, they care about efficiency, but when there's a strong case, they're not coming to the table to right. to collaborate with us right. on strong cases. Right. They'll fight tooth and nail. Right. And like, if how can we, how can we ever say that that's objective when there's no, there's no fairness or like openness to the other side in that? Right. You know? When every time you ask to come to the table, you hear crickets. Right. Or or when, like, you... Like, the TAs take whatever command the DOJ, the, like, Attorney General gives them. So... Yeah. How is that objective? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and the judges aren't independent, so... Right. How did you, going back to corporate law, how did you ensure that you didn't get sucked into big law or, you know, essentially get enamored by the nice lifestyle you can have with the money? Well, the general lifestyle is not that nice. I know. Yeah. Actually, I was going to say, I'm glad that you're talking about like 9 p.m. dinners in the office and like always getting your dinner delivered because that is a reality that I think people need to know about. Yeah. You end up doing, everything revolves around work. That's so, yeah. Right? Or like the, like when I would talk to my friends, it would be like when I was in a cab on the way home from work between like 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. New York time. And it would, I would call my friends on the West Coast because I thought they would be awake still. Yeah. But, I mean, there is some excitement to it. There is... There's a lot of access, you get to go to events, and the money is good, but for me, like, I was there to pay off my loans, and I think one of the best things I did to kind of ensure I stayed on track to leave was I automatically diverted about half of my income to a separate account I didn't use, and that was just for servicing my loans. So as I was living my life in New York, I was living much more frugally than I had to. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really living the big law lifestyle, at least not to the fullest. Yeah. I think that's what's critical if you're, if you do want to leave big law. Because I remember, I think I, I, it was like a New York Times interview of this 
person who had said originally she she was a woman of color she was a lawyer and she entered big law saying in a few years i'm gonna leave and i'm gonna pursue my real passion and then she said um but then actually i didn't end up doing it because i wasn't willing to take that pay cut yeah so give yourself the pay cut at the beginning exactly like you have to live within the means that a public interest lawyer would live i think if you realistically want to live right. want to leave big law you also have to treat yourself every once in a while <laughs> so you won't <laughs> so you don't die like i did treat myself from time to time but for the most part i was just diverting yeah what was the worst part of being a corporate lawyer in a weird way i think one of the most difficult things for me was how well i actually fit in right, <laughs> I don't see myself as that person and I actually was doing well and fitting in and like it's a role I can play and like realizing that I have that in me was kind of gross yeah right so I think that was really hard for me that's kind of how I feel about the legal profession as a whole (laughs) yeah and yeah (laughs) like when I went to law school and it was one all fall and everyone was their worst selves and like I just saw that like how neurotic people were how mm-hmm. type a they were how they needed to have every gold star maybe be like oh my god even you have these qualities in you too yeah maybe not to that extent right but they're in you. or it's like you think of yourself as type a and then you get around a bunch of lawyers and you're like oh i am like type a minus <laughs> a minus yeah i don't sell me <laughs> but then i'm around other people's like oh no i am like kind of wild no yeah yeah that's how that's exactly how I feel like I run my friends I'm probably the most uptight person but yeah. then like when I went to Stanford Law it's like oh my god I am really chill <laughs> and I never thought that I was that chill or I was really concerned about like infecting the nonprofit space with my uh big law training what like with the jargon or what no just like expectations and how I'd use time or, you know, I, I was trained to basically respond to emails within five to 10 minutes. God, that freaks me out. <laughs> right. <laughs> or I was talking to my boss a couple days ago and about like some kind of like weird habit I have from big law. And he's like, yeah, man, like I'm trying to figure out how to boomerang your emails because I know if I send you an email on the weekend, like you're going to respond and I don't want you to. It's like, I, yeah, I will, I will <laughs> respond. I don't know how not to. Why don't you turn the notifications off on the weekend? What if I get something important? I know, it's so hard when you do deportation defense, because it's like, I mean, what if somebody gets deported on a Saturday? Yeah. You know? Like, what if, yeah. I'm not ready to let go in that way yet. (laughs) So that really was the worst part, that you fit in so well? It wasn't like you weren't doing immoral things? People weren't racist and sexist to you? Oh, no, like, I, I dealt with some workplace harassment issues that weren't great the hours were horrible the expectations were absurd I was less healthy there are all kinds of just you know objective things that that were bad it's also not that easy to be a black woman in that space or even like it's easy at all you know, or to feel, like, worst case scenario, you feel excluded. Best case scenario, you feel tokenized, right? Yeah. So. Shitty either way. Yeah, and I've, I've been the token. But I worked really hard to make the best of it and to, mm-hmm. to use that time productively. And I think I walked away with a lot of good relationships that continue to serve me as, as I move forward in my life. And I left with a lot of support for the path I was taking. 
So I feel good about that. Yeah. That's good. And you paid off your student loans. I did. What public interest person can say that? The LRAP, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know, I know, I know. You'll get there. <laughs> yeah, 10 years from now. Nine and a half. <laughs> Okay, so circling back to your current asylum work, or your current, more generally, deportation defense work, do you see yourself in direct legal services long-term? I really haven't thought about it. I'm not, like, a five- or ten-year plan kind of girl. I appreciate that. It's just, like, the not type A part of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think most people are like that, and then they, like, retroactively create a narrative. Yeah, no, I don't have one. Like, I I stumbled into my current job, and I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. But you, Um, I mean, you had, did you have ideas of what kind of public interest law you wanted to do? I I was leaning towards immigration or crim justice reform, Mm -hmm. and I thought I'd be more on the policy advocacy side than doing direct services. I think I had a fear of being in court. Like, I didn't want to be on a stage. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be, like, in an office with the door closed, like... (laughs) Typing away. How do you feel now about being in court? It's actually strangely fine. I think going into immigration law as someone that didn't have that much trial experience is in a way easier than a Mm -hmm. traditional job because the rules don't really apply. So in a weird way, you can't win, you can't lose. (laughs) Like they're like everyone's like flying by the seat of their pants. People turn in wild stuff. I feel like no one's blue booking. No one cares about. Like, all this stuff that in law school they scare you about. Like, none yes. of it applies to immigration Pe- law. People really scared me about needing to adhere to all of the blue book laws. And I actually agree with you that, like, nobody's blue booking in, in no, immigration I court. I don't think... And I think that's fine. I don't think we... I don't think we need to... And mostly we're citing the record. record. Yeah. I also don't think anyone's read any of my briefs. Oh, my God. I'm not even gonna do. I think that's terrible. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> also, it's just like, God, how much time did I spend on this? Right. And no one's reading it. Yeah, that was one of the most demoralizing things for me was writing a 14-page asylum brief and then having the judge order the person deported without considering the particular social groups I had written about. Just like, no. Yeah, deported. But what Alex was referring to earlier about how there like are early rules is that the federal rules of evidence are suggested as something to be paid attention to, but they're not binding. And so it's kind of like you can make arguments based on the rules of evidence, but it's really a crapshoot how it's going to go for you. Yep. <laughs> I also think immigration court is a, like a nice entryway into trial work because it's just different than being in federal district court. Like yeah. you're seated. Yeah. For most of the time, and I think that's, I don't know, for me, that's really important. Maybe as like a shorter person, that's why I thought it was really great. But I like, I don't, it didn't feel that intimidating. I think it really depends on what judge you're in front of. That's that's fair. That's fair. But yeah, no, I thought I would be more scared than I have been. And I think also trying to let go of what the outcome should be and just Mm. know that it matters that you're there and that you're trying your best and that when things go wrong in court it's mostly out of your hands yeah that was the advice that my friend Anique who's a public defender gave recently is like 
but she said when she first started practicing she would be like staying up late being like oh my god my clients in jail and they're gonna stay in jail if i don't do this one motion or if i don't do this one thing and it's like actually there's a ton of other structural reasons that have nothing to do with your work that are why that person's in prison yeah and you have to let that notion go that you are in control of the right. situation. <laughs> you're com- it's completely out of control. Yeah, yeah. And also figuring out how to work efficiently and to know when that marginal amount of extra time isn't really benefiting your client and it actually makes more sense for you to sleep or go for a run so that you're going to be able to pay attention in court and feel like a decent human being. Yeah. No, I really realized that, like, how easy it is to get burned out in drug legal services and how, like, social justice lawyering community does not need any more martyrs, you know? We deserve to have... Also, as women of color, we deserve to have, like, free and happy lives. Everyone deserves that, but in particular... Well, in particular. In particular, (laughs) us. Um. (laughs) That reminds me of of all those tweets that are, like... Like, I don't know, if, some, if somebody will say, like, good morning to all the beautiful black girls, and then, like, the white person retweets being like, well, what about me? It's like, or, like, no, they'll say, like, well, hello also to all the white girls, and the person will be like, no, I said hello in particular. Is that what I meant? <laughs> yeah. One last thing I will say to law students or to folks trying to forge, you know, their way, their legal careers is forgive yourself. You know what? Like we all make a bunch of decisions and the the first job you have does not define you. You do not have to stick down a path you do not like that does not interest you that does not bring you joy. When you're starting your legal career, it's just the beginning. You don't even have to be a lawyer. Yes, you don't have to be a lawyer. You don't even have to be a lawyer. So forgive you can be a yourself. <laughs> Yeah, monetize this. We're trying. Did you hear that, y'all? <laughs> I really appreciate that because I felt, and friends of mine who are also new lawyers have felt like treated shittily at their jobs. And I think that that's kind of a problem across the legal profession where I don't know what it is this lack of sympathy for people who are in earlier stages of the legal profession than you are Mm -hmm. but I just think it's really important to say that you deserve to be happy in your job yeah and that it's okay if the first job that you get isn't your dream job and it's also okay to leave it prematurely if it's like that type of mental health destabilizing situation absolutely yeah and forgive yourself like it really yes and it's not a mistake. Like, you learn something from every decision. Right. It's not wasted time. Mm-hmm. I think that's important to say to people interested in law school because you're probably an overachiever <laughs> if that's something that's on your radar. And I, it's just important to say that, like, success isn't linear and you're at where you're at and you can yeah. always move forward in a different direction. And if you're actually just going to law school to make money... Don't go to business school instead. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and if you are in big law, you should donate to immigration nonprofits. Yes, absolutely. You I don't should. think I have a big law listenership, but 
You might. I don't know. You might. I don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Alex, for coming onto the pod and talking about your work and your previous work. And I hope to have you on again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Happy anytime. Bye. Bye.